And we're going to see this morning as we look at Genesis 44 and 45, Joseph and his brothers part two, that they are going to have their final test in Genesis chapter 44. And our transformational truth this week is when problems arise in relationships, keep the relationship bigger than the problem. Now, sometimes that's a difficult thing to do because we get sidetracked by a problem or what we perceive as a crisis in a relationship, or maybe we've been hurt or offended, and so we're focusing on the issue or maybe on our rights or our hurt feelings instead of on the priority of the relationship, which is more important than any petty offense that we are taking notice of. Now, when we talk about these things, we obviously always have to say we're not talking about something that's illegal or abuse. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the offenses that most of us deal with, sometimes almost on a daily basis, right? That we have to choose to make the relationship more important than the problem. And so you let that person know, I love you, I value you, we need to deal with this issue, but I want you to know, I want to honor you our relationship above all as we deal with this. And then that takes the threat away because so often we associate ourselves with the problem instead of seeing the problem as something separate from the relationship. And so Joseph is going to do that well. And I have shared with you two of the three untruths from the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And we're going to look at the third one today. But I want you just to remember, remember the first one was the untruth of fragility. We're really not fragile. We're anti-fragile. In fact, God has created us in such a way that difficulties actually strengthen us. And we've seen that in the life of Joseph. That God sometimes allows these trials and tribulations to make us stronger in preparation for greater work in his kingdom. The second is the untruth of emotional reasoning. In other words, always trust your feelings. Now, our culture definitely is a proponent of that. And we remember that we don't allow feelings to be the driver in our life. Instead, God's word, his truth, is what we make decisions based upon. And as we consistently make decisions based upon the truth of God's word, our feelings will eventually line up with what is true. Well, the untruth we're looking at today is the untruth of us versus them. Our culture wants us to pick sides. Our culture is polarized. In fact, it's the lie that life is a battle between good people and evil people. So what is the truth? And the truth, even according to this unchristian book, just a secular book, is we're all prone to dichotomous thinking and tribalism. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Now, isn't it interesting that two unsaved men know <laughs> there is a line of good and evil that goes through the heart of every human being? We know that. We know as believers it's a sin nature. We've all inherited a sin nature from Adam, and we all have a propensity to protect and to take care of self and to hurt others if we feel threatened. It's an us versus them mentality. And then we find others who believe exactly the way we do, and we can become tribalist, right? My tribe is more important than this tribe, and it, the other person or the other group can actually be perceived as a threat. And we have to be careful not to fall into the trap of us versus them thinking, our culture says, agree with me completely or I will cancel you or I'll call you out. That's what happens on social media, right? Somebody gets called out and everybody piles on and the person gets canceled. And so people are afraid to be called out or canceled so they don't say anything. We cannot allow the enemy to threaten us into silence when we know the truth. But we always speak the truth in love. 
I'm not saying you have to be on social media, but in your relationships, you speak the truth in love. That's what God has called us to do. But I also want to encourage you. Somebody came up to me after I had mentioned some of these things from the coddling of the American mind and said, but that book's not Christian. <laughs> I said, I realize that. I told you. It's, they're not Christians. But I love it when I find biblical truth which is just the common grace God has given. Because he said it's evident in nature and it's evident in our conscience that there is a God. So when people stumble upon God's design, I just think it's awesome that it backs up the word of God and yet they don't even realize that they're backing up the word of God. We need to be able to read and read widely to learn, but we always have the Bible as our plumb line. And when I read things, maybe because I've trained myself to do that, I wanted to encourage you as you read, even if it's a Christian author, you make sure everything you're reading lines up with the Word of God. Now, it may be a preconceived idea you have that's not right. <laughs> and when I read my Bible daily, many times I will pray, Lord, remove any preconceived ideas I have and let me hear you as you reveal yourself to me through your word, as I open your word. Because I can have traditions and things that are not actually biblical that have just been a part of my upbringing that I'm unaware of. And so I'm asking the Lord to show me those things that I may not have a biblical viewpoint about <clears throat> and to reveal that to me. But anytime I read a book, I am, I, I now just kind of like <clears throat> almost skim over what is not true according to God's word, <clears throat> to find the nuggets that are true, to find the things that are true and are beneficial. So I want to encourage you to be able to do that. And why do some people have a hesitancy to read other people outside their tribe? I'm afraid sometimes it's because we don't really know what the Bible says ourselves, because we don't have a systematic plan for reading through the word of God, and we aren't diligent students of God's word. All we actually know is what our favorite teacher or author tells us the Bible says. <laughs> and because we don't know for ourselves, it's more difficult for us to discern the lie when we're reading other books or listening to other teachers or podcasts. That's why it's imperative that we read the word of God ourselves and that we know the God of the word and we know his story. That's why in women's ministry, we do a deep dive into books of the Bible so that we can work through them and see God truly is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I would encourage you as you study the word of God, as there are specific scriptures that seem to jump out at you, put them on a three by five card. I've got a ring bound three by five card set of verses that I memorize and meditate on. And as you meditate on the word of God, as you're memorizing it, it begins to change the way you think. That's how our minds are renewed. So we don't want to fall into what our culture is pressing upon all of us with this us versus them mentality. It's an all or nothing us versus them world. And when we fall into that trap, it eventually leads to what we see happen with Joseph's brothers. It was them against Joseph. Suddenly, Joseph became the threat, and Joseph needed to be eliminated. Instead of dealing with the problem, they allowed it to damage and move into the relationship. You know, it is, in essence, what we're seeing happen in Israel. The us versus them mentality leads to fear of the other, hatred, and eventual desire to eliminate, leading to the horrors and the atrocities that we are hearing and seeing on our news that have happened as a result of Hamas, of terrorism, 
It's sheer hatred. It's demonic. In fact, we don't live in an us versus them world with people. We live in an us versus them world with demons. What you're seeing is demonic. And so if we can separate and understand what does the scripture tell us from Ephesians 6, 10, it says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is not against people, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So we stand firm on the word of God and we appropriate the whole armor of God, which literally is just Jesus Christ. We are putting on Jesus Christ when we appropriate the armor of God and that enables us as we are in Christ to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. The lies of our culture, which the evil one is behind. Joseph stood firm by trusting God in his sovereignty. He did not give in to emotional reasoning. He didn't fall into the trap of us versus them thinking. Instead, he surrendered to the Lord and allowed the Lord to grant him wisdom and insight. And because he believed, he saw. Now, we've talked about this quite a bit. And my, I guess, favorite illustration of that are the 12 spies in Israel that went into the promised land and 10 went in with unbelief and they came back only seeing in the natural. Two, Joshua and Caleb went in believing God and they were able to see into the spirit realm that God had removed his hand of protection from the people of the land and God was giving them the land. So they came back with two completely different perspectives. Now I want us to think about that in light of Joseph. If he had not been trusting God with all the hardships he had faced and he was feeling sorry for himself, he could have been angry at his brothers, seeking revenge and also angry at God because God had allowed it to happen. But he did not. He believed God and he trusted that God was sovereign. He's all power, powerful. He's in control. And because he trusted God, God allowed him to see what you're going to see today in our, our lesson, exactly what Dana pointed out. You guys didn't send me here. <laughs> God did. How was he able to see that? He could only see it because he believed. He could only see it because he trusted God. There are other people all throughout Scripture, but I just thought of a few women. Rahab. Remember everybody in Jericho had heard the stories? of the plagues in Egypt, of how God had protected them, of the parting of the Red Sea, how God protected them in the wilderness. And what did Rahab say? All of us have heard, and our hearts have melted within us because your God is the God of heaven and earth. Now, nobody else in Jericho got that. They had all heard the same stories. Their hearts had all melted with fear. But because she believed that their God was the God of heaven and earth, God allowed her to see and to understand. Not only that, he sent someone to rescue her and her family because she believed. Because she, could be because she believed what she had heard about God, she was able to see what others could not. Ruth is the same way. I mean, we think about Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons moving to Moab because there's a famine in Bethlehem. They did exactly what they were not supposed to do. And yet in the midst of this, their sons take Moabite wives. Then Elimelech dies and then the two sons die. And what happens? Somehow in the midst of all of that, Ruth had seen the God of Israel in their family, and she had believed. And because she believed, she would not leave Naomi. She chose to go back with her, to leave her culture, to leave all that she had known, because Naomi's God 
was going to be her God. And because she believed, God just happened to put her in the field of Boaz, who just happened to be a kinsman redeemer, who just happened to protect her. And then God grafts her into the very lineage of Jesus Christ. Why? Simply because she believed. And ladies, that is what the Lord is saying to us over and over again. If you will believe, if you will take me at my word, you will see. But we must believe to be able to see. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16, talking about these great people of faith of the Old Testament, said all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. If you believe, you will see. God will open your heart and your mind. He will reveal himself to you, but also he will begin to reveal to you what he has prepared for you, which enables you to walk through this life as a stranger and an exile, knowing you do not belong. If you have the spirit of God within you, you have the spirit, 1 Corinthians 2 tells us, who knows the very thoughts of God, and his desire is to reveal those to us. If we believe God, that he's working all things together for good, then we will be able to trust him even when we don't understand. Why? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. We're going to move in now into Genesis 44, and we're looking at the final test. So what has happened? Well, they ran out of grain, so the brothers we studied last week had to come back, and they brought Benjamin with them, talked their father into it, because the man that was in charge had said, you're not going to see my face unless you bring your younger brother. That's going to prove to me that you are honest men. So they come, and we know that Joseph is greatly moved by being able to see his younger brother, Benjamin. Well, and in 44, he sends them off. They're going back home to their father. And what does he do? Has his stewards put the money back in their sacks and hides his silver drinking cup in Benjamin's sack. So as soon as they get outside the city limits, he sends his steward after them and says, you're going to say to them, why would you do this? After all the kindness my master has shown you, why would you steal his silver drinking cup? It also says that he used it for divination. There's no evidence that Joseph ever did that, but it was what the Egyptians used them for. And as an, a powerful man in Egypt, that may have just been something that was in his house. We don't really know. But he knew it was important to the Egyptians, so he had them hide it in Benjamin's sack. And, of course, they stop him. They're saying, no, no, we, we, we brought our money back from last time. No, none of us would do this. In fact, if you find it in anybody's sack, that person will die and the rest of us will be your slaves. So what does the steward do? Once again, he begins with the oldest and works his way down to the youngest. Remember, that's how Joseph had had them seated when he'd had the meal with them. And they marveled at it then. Okay, this had to have made them nervous that once again, they understand and know the birth order. And nobody has it, nobody has it, nobody has it until they get to Benjamin. And what happens when the cup is found in Benjamin's sack? They tear their clothes. The worst possible thing that could happen has happened. 
because they've all promised they're going to protect Benjamin and that they will bring him back. And so they go back to plead with Joseph and basically saying, we'll all be your slaves. All of us will be your slaves. And what does Joseph say? No, only the one in whom the sack, the cup was found. And so who steps up? The brothers fall at his feet and Judah, the one who had the idea to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelite traders, steps up and says, no, I made a promise to my father that I would be surety for this son. In fact, in chapter 44, verses 18 through the end of the book, is his case, him stating his case before Joseph, that he wants to take Benjamin's place. Let's pick up in verse 18. Then Judah approached him and said, Oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you're equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother's dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about, when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we'll go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me. And I said, surely he is torn to pieces and I've not seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol and sorrow. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus, your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol and sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? So what are we seeing here? A dramatic change in these brothers, right? They were the ones who concocted the scheme to sell Joseph with what appeared to be very little remorse. But we're going to see now God has not only convicted them. I mean, they talked about it the first time that he threw them into prison on their first visit and gave them an opportunity to think through where where they'd gone wrong and uh, what they had done. And he was able to hear them talk about it. Well, now he sees a complete change of heart in the brothers because none of them will throw Benjamin under the bus. All of them are tearing their clothes, falling down at Joseph's feet. And Judah steps up and wants to be sure. He wants to take his place. So what happens in chapter 45? It says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him, for they were dismayed. Can you even imagine? 
It's been 22 years. They are assuming he's dead. They have no idea what happened to him. And Joseph, he's been there for 22 years. He's obviously in this position. He's learned the language. He looks like a ruler in Egypt. He talks like a ruler in Egypt. And all of a sudden, he starts speaking to them in their language. And he says, I'm Joseph. <gasps> Our fears have been realized, right? <laughs> Our, our guilt has, come to, has been exposed. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. What do we notice he did before he revealed himself? He had all the Egyptians leave. Not once does Joseph expose the sin of his brothers. Not once. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me ruler over all the land of Egypt, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come. You and your household and all that you have will be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin sees, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. I'd say that's a pretty big reveal wouldn't you? <laughs> this Egyptian man, this one who's been toying with them, testing them, <gasps> it's their brother, the one they wanted to kill, the one they sold as a slave. How is he second in command in all of Egypt? Because God had told Abraham in Genesis 15 that his people would be in Egypt for 400 years and Joseph knew that promise. And Joseph realized that God had sent him there, not his brothers, not even their sin against him. God allowed it to get him to Egypt and put him in the right place at the right time to be able to interpret the two dreams of Pharaoh, to put him in a position to protect his people. Are we beginning to get the picture that it's not about us? <laughs> that it actually is ultimately about God's kingdom and God's perfect will being accomplished, and his will going forward, and he is moving and working, and if we will believe, we get to get in on what he's doing. But we have to believe to see. R.T. Kendall, in his book, Total Forgiveness, said, the moment finally came when Joseph revealed himself. It was the moment he dreamed of. But instead of punishing them, which he had the power to do, he wept. Filled with love, he demonstrated total forgiveness. And that's what I want us to kind of focus in on this morning is what does it mean to truly forgive? And Jesus said we have to forgive from the heart. 
So that means it's not just me saying I forgive, but it means my emotions need to eventually change toward that person because I need to forgive them from the heart. And that means it doesn't mean that I say what they did was not wrong or not hurtful, but it does mean I take them off my hook and I put them on God's because he is the only righteous judge. And he has said, don't seek revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. He is the only one righteous enough to handle that. So we take them off our hook, put them on God's because we trust God because he is righteous and he is faithful. And we want to be forgiven. What did Jesus say? You'll be forgiven as you forgive. Forgive or you won't be forgiven. So sometimes we do use the ulterior motive of wanting to be forgiven to choose to forgive. And that's okay. Because sometimes the pain is still so raw, the offense so hurtful, that it's difficult to choose forgiveness. And we can say, Lord, I'm choosing forgiveness simply out of obedience and because I want to be forgiven. But once I see my own sin as it is in light of his holiness, it's so much easier to forgive others when I realize how much I've been forgiven. And Joseph was able to forgive Because he believed God. And God allowed him to see his hand moving and orchestrating the events to bring about God's purposes. And it was actually for their protection, for their well-being, for their flourishing. That God was going to bring them in and put them in the best of the land of Egypt. And they would be protected while the rest of the world was suffering in a famine they would be provided for. But as I mentioned, he didn't talk about the offense. He made the Egyptians leave. As far as we know, Pharaoh never knows because Pharaoh is incredibly gracious to his brothers and to his father. So there's no indication that he ever told who actually sold him as a slave. And then we have to refuse to punish or seek revenge. He had the power. He could have done it. But that's why God prepared his character during those 13 years of trials So that when he was in that position of power and prestige, he would not misuse it. He would trust God instead. And then we're to bless and pray for those that you've forgiven. What did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. How can we do that? By dying to our flesh So that it is not I who lives what we so casually sang about earlier, but Christ living in us. That's the only way we can do it. My flesh doesn't want to forgive. Neither does yours. (laughs) In fact, my flesh wants to rehearse the offense, right? Over and over. In fact, if it happens to be a spouse or somebody that you're really, really close to, sometimes you keep a long list of offenses, you know? And I do not do this anymore. But I did. (laughs) There was a time when I kept a list. And then something would happen, and I would roll the list out. And Steve would stand there like a deer in headlights going like, are you writing this stuff down? Like, how do you remember all of this? Oh, I've been rehearsing it in my head. (laughs) I've been going over these offenses. I have a mental list. I can roll it out at will. How ugly is that? That's just despicable. But that was what I did. And literally, it was when the Lord showed me the rebelliousness in my own heart and my own sin. About 12 years into our marriage, 
that I met him at the door one day, literally weeping, and just said, I am so sorry. I have been so rebellious. I just ask you to forgive me. The Lord has shown me the rebellion in my heart, and I, I was grief-stricken over my own sin. He was like, what did you do? <laughs> I'm just such a wretch. I'm so it's like, I thought I'd done something really horrible. It's like, but I am horrible. That's the thing on the inside. The Lord let me see what's on the inside, and it's just, ugh. It's terrible. I couldn't stand it. I ended up on my face in the carpet just crying out to the Lord, Lord, forgive me. And once we see ourselves, we can't not forgive somebody else. We who've been forgiven so much, we who are now the righteousness of God in Christ are to live like it. He said, don't be angry with yourselves. Don't be hard on yourselves. It wasn't you who sent me here. I mean, he's consoling them. He's comforting them after all that they did to him, all that he's experienced. He's telling them, I will take care of you. And what does he say? Come. All of our sin has actually been committed against Christ. What did David say? Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. My sin, your sin, is ultimately against Christ. And yet, what does Christ say to us? Come. <laughs> Come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He says, Come. How does the Bible end? Come. <laughs> He's inviting us. We've said over and over how much Joseph is a type of Christ. What is he saying to his sinful brothers? Come, come to me, come closer. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you with an abundance. And that's exactly what he does. And then when Pharaoh hears about it, what does he do? He pours abundance on top of that. Not only that, take my wagons, take all the best that Egypt has and go back and get your, your children, your little ones, your father and bring them back. I'll give you the very best of the land. It's a picture of what we have in Christ, the abundant life, the eternal life, the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. All the promises of God for us are yes in Jesus. We have everything we need in him. And if we just believe, we'll see it. We'll understand it. We'll get it. You know, when we've chosen to forgive others. Sometimes we struggle most forgiving ourselves, don't we? But you know, as we start peeling back the layers, sometimes we see we've had some bitterness and resentment even toward God. We need to forgive him. R.T. Kendall said, although we often do not see it at first, all of our bitterness is ultimately traceable to a resentment of God. God, you could have stopped this. You could have prevented this. You could have given me this, whatever it may be. And yet God is saying, I will if you will trust me. Work all things together for your good and for my glory. Just like he did in Joseph's life. So Pharaoh offers all the wonderful things to go back and to prove to Jacob that Joseph really is second in command in all of Egypt. And what does Jacob say when his, bro his brothers, his sons come back to tell them that Joseph's actually alive and he's second in command in all of Egypt and he's inviting us to come. He's wanting to take care of us. Look at the brother's response um, <clears throat> in 21 and following. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. 
To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, what did he say to them? Do not quarrel on the journey. (laughs) Don't fight about whose fault this is. It's all forgiven. We're all good because God is doing this. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he didn't believe them. He thought for 22 years that Joseph had been torn apart by wild beasts. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Now look at what happens in the next verse. Then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Do you remember when God changed his name from Jacob, which means deceiver, to Israel? Israel, the name given to the chosen people of God. And there was a change in Jacob the moment he believed that Joseph was alive. And verse 21 says, Israel said. From that moment on, he began to speak by faith. And he was living up to the name God had given him. You know, our workbook this week told us that we are called to higher living. That means we are not to get caught up in the world's way of thinking or acting or treating others. We're called to a higher way of living. It's the Christ life. It's the life of the forgiven. And in fact, this past week came upon a poem written by Gloria Gaither. It's been put to a tune of an old hymn. But the words of the poem are so beautiful and so fit our lesson that I wanted to share it with you. This is how we can keep our relationships bigger than any problem. Listen to this. I then shall live as one who's been forgiven. If we know we're forgiven, right? We're going to be able to forgive. I'll walk with joy to know my debts are paid. I know my name is clear before my father. I am his child and I'm not afraid. So greatly pardoned, I'll forgive my brother. The law of love, I gladly will obey. And if you were in our Galatians study, you remember in the Old Testament, there were 613 laws. But when we got to the New Testament under Jesus, there's one. It's the law of love. That's the law he's called us to. We've gone back to the only one law of the garden. One law now, we're called to love just as God loves. The second verse, I then shall live as one who's learned compassion. I've been so loved that I'll risk loving too. I know how fear builds walls instead of bridges. I'll dare to see another's point of view. And when relationships demand commitment, then I'll be there to care and follow through. Now, can we take this last verse and would you read it with me as a prayer? Because that's exactly what it is. Your kingdom come, 
around and through and in me. Your power and glory, let them shine through me. Your hallowed name, oh, may I bear with honor. And may your living kingdom come in me. The bread of life, oh, may I share with honor. And may you feed a hungry world through me. Amen. Father, we're asking that it may be so, that your kingdom would come and your perfect will would be done in each one of our lives. Lord, that we would live as the forgiven who love much because we've been forgiven much and that we would choose to forgive. And Lord, may you so fill us with your Holy Spirit that you will use us to take the bread of life to a lost, dying, and hungry world. Father, help us to believe that we might see, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.